Chapters 19 and 20 of Beasts, Men, and Gods. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Beasts, Men, and Gods by Ferdinand Ossendowski. Chapter 19 Wild Chahars. After our return to Uliasutai, we heard that disquieting news had been received by the Mongol Sate from Murinkure. The letter stated that red troops were pressing Colonel Casagrande very hard in the region of Lake Kosugal. The Sate feared the advance of the red troops southward to Uliasutai. Both the American firms liquidated their affairs, and all our friends were prepared for a quick exit, though they hesitated at the thought of leaving the town, as they were afraid of meeting the detachment of Charhars sent from the east. We decided to await the arrival of this detachment, as their coming could change the whole course of events. In a few days they came, two hundred warlike Chahar brigands, under the command of a former Chinese Hunghutsi. He was a tall, skinny man with hands that reached almost to his knees, a face blackened by wind and sun, and mutilated with two long scars down over his forehead and cheek, the making of one of which had also closed one of his hawk-like eyes, topped off with a shaggy coonskin cap, such was the commander of the detachment of Chahars, a personage very dark and stern, with whom a night meeting on a lonely street could not be considered a pleasure by any bent of the imagination. The detachment made camp within the destroyed fortress, near to the single Chinese building that had not been raised, and which was now serving as headquarters for the Chinese commissioner. On the very day of their arrival, the Chahars pillaged a Chinese dugan, or trading-house, not a half a mile from the fortress, and also offended the wife of the Chinese commissioner by calling her a traitor. The Chahars, like the Mongols, were quite right in their stand, because the Chinese commissioner, Wang Tsao-tsun, had on his arrival in Uliasutai followed the Chinese custom of demanding a Mongolian wife. The servile new sate had given orders that a beautiful and suitable Mongolian girl be found for him. One was so run down and placed in his yamen, together with her big wrestling Mongol brother, who was to be a guard for the commissioner, but who developed into the nurse for the little white Pekingese pug which the official presented to his new wife. Burglaries, squabbles, and drunken orgies of the Chahars followed, so that Wang Tsao-tsun exerted all his efforts to hurry the detachment westward to Kabdo and further into Yurianhai. One cold morning the inhabitants of Uliasutai rose to witness a very stern picture. Along the main street of the town the detachment was passing. They were riding on small, shaggy ponies, three abreast, were dressed in warm blue coats with sheepskin overcoats outside, and crowned with the regulation coonskin caps, armed from head to foot. They rode with wild shouts and cheers, very greedily eyeing the Chinese shops and the houses of the Russian colonists. At their head rode the one-eyed Hunghutsi chief with three horsemen behind him in white overcoats, who carried waving banners and blew what may have been meant for music through great conch shells. One of the charhars could not resist, and so jumped out of his saddle and made for a Chinese shop along the street. Immediately the anxious cries of the Chinese merchants came from the shop. The Hunghutsi swung around, noticed the horse at the door of the shop, and realized what was happening. Immediately he reined his horse and made for the spot. With his raucous voice he called the Chahar out. 
As he came, he struck him full in the face with his whip and with all his strength. Blood flowed from the slashed cheek, but the Chahar was in the saddle in a second without a murmur, and galloped to his place in the file. During this exit of the Chahars all the people were hidden in their houses, anxiously peeping through cracks and corners of the windows. But the Chahars passed peacefully out, and only when they met a caravan carrying Chinese wine about six miles from town did their native tendency display itself again in pillaging and emptying several containers. Somewhere in the vicinity of Hargana they were ambushed by Tushigun Lama, and so treated that never again will the plains of Chahar welcome the return of these warrior sons, who were sent out to conquer the Soyot descendants of the ancient Tuba. The day the column left Uliasitai a heavy snow fell, so that the road became impassable. The horses first were up to their knees, tired out, and stopped. Some Mongol horsemen reached Uliasitai the following day after great hardship and exertion, having made only twenty-five miles in forty-eight hours. Caravans were compelled to stop along the routes. The Mongols could not consent even to attempt journeys with oxen and yaks, which made but ten or twelve miles a day. Only camels could be used, but there were too few, and their drivers did not feel that they could make the first railway station of Kukuhoto, which was about fourteen hundred miles away. We were forced again to wait. For which? death or salvation. Only our own energy and force could save us. Consequently, my friend and I started out, supplied with a tent, stove, and food, for a new reconnaissance along the shore of Lake Kosugal, whence the Mongol sate expected the new invasion of red troops. End of chapter 19 Chapter 20 The Demon of Jagistai our small group, consisting of four mounted and one pack camel, moved northward along the valley of the river Boyogal, in the direction of the Tarbagatai Mountains. The road was rocky and covered deep with snow. Our camels walked very carefully, sniffing out the way as our guide shouted the, "'Okay! Okay!' of the camel drivers to urge them on. We left behind us the fortress and Chinese dugun, swung round the shoulder of a ridge, and, after fording several times an open stream, began the ascent of the mountain. The scramble was hard and dangerous. Our camels picked their way most cautiously, moving their ears constantly, as is their habit in such stress. The trail zigzagged into mountain ravines, passed over the tops of ridges, slipped back down again into shallower valleys, but ever made higher and higher altitudes. At one place under the grey clouds that tipped the ridges, we saw away up on the wide expanse of snow some black spots. "'Those are the oboe, the sacred signs and altars for the bad demons watching this pass,' explained the guide. "'This pass is called Jagistai. Many very old tales about it have been kept alive, ancient as these mountains themselves.' We encouraged him to tell us some of them. The Mongol, rocking on his camel and looking carefully all around him, began his tale. It was long ago, very long ago. The grandson of the great Genghis Khan sat on the throne of China and ruled all Asia. The Chinese killed their Khan and wanted to exterminate all his family, but a holy old lama slipped the wife and little son out of the palace and carried them off on swift camels beyond the great wall. 
where they sank into our native plains. The Chinese made a long search for the trails of our refugees, and at last found where they had gone. They dispatched a strong detachment on fleet horses to capture them. Sometimes the Chinese nearly came up with the fleeing air of our Khan, but the Lama called down from heaven a deep snow, through which the camels could pass, while the horses were inextricably held. This Lama was from a distant monastery. We shall pass this hospice of Jahanse Kure. In order to reach it, one must cross over the Jagistai. And it was just here the old Lama suddenly became ill, rocked in his saddle, and fell dead. Ta Sin Lo, the widow of the great Khan, burst into tears. But, seeing the Chinese riders galloping there below across the valley, pressed on toward the pass. The camels were tired, stopping every moment, nor did the woman know how to stimulate and drive them on. The Chinese riders came nearer and nearer. Already she heard their shouts of joy, as they felt within their grasp the prize of the mandarins for the murder of the heir of the great Khan. The heads of the mother and the son would be brought to Peking and exposed on the Qianmen for the mockery and insults of the people. The frightened mother lifted her little son toward heaven and exclaimed, Earth and gods of Mongolia, behold the offspring of the man who has glorified the name of the Mongols from one end of the world to the other. Allow not this very flesh of Genghis Khan to perish. At this moment she noticed a white mouse sitting on a rock nearby. He jumped to her knees and said, I am sent to help you. Go on calmly, and do not fear. The pursuers of you and your son, to whom is destined a life of glory, have come to the last born of their lives. Ta Sin Lo did not see how one small mouse could hold in check three hundred men. The mouse jumped back to the ground and again spoke, I am the demon of Tarbagatai, Jagastai. I am mighty and beloved of the gods. But because you doubted the powers of the miracle-speaking mouse, from this day the Jagastai will be dangerous for the good and bad alike. The Khan's widow and son were saved, but Jagastai has ever remained merciless. During the journey over this pass one must always be on one's guard. The demon of the mountain is ever ready to lead the traveller to destruction. All the tops and the ridges of the Tarbagatai are thickly dotted with the oboe of rocks and branches. In one place there was even erected a tower of stones as an altar, to propitiate the gods for the doubts of Ta Sin Lo. Evidently the demon expected us. When we began our ascent of the main ridge, he blew into our faces with a sharp cold wind, whistled and roared, and afterwards began casting over us whole blocks of snow torn off the drifts above. We could not distinguish anything around us, scarcely seeing the camel immediately in front. Suddenly I felt a shock and looked about me. Nothing unusual was visible. I was seated comfortably between two leather saddle-bags filled with meat and bread, but I could not see the head of my camel. He had disappeared. It seemed that he had slipped and fallen to the bottom of a shallow ravine, while the bags which were slung across his back without straps had caught on a rock and stopped with myself there in the snow. This time the demon of Jagastai only played a joke, but one that did not satisfy him. 
he began to show more and more anger. With furious gusts of wind he almost dragged us and our bags from the camels, and nearly knocked over our humped steeds, blinded us with frozen snow, and prevented us from breathing. Through long hours we dragged slowly on in the deep snow, often falling over the edge of the rocks. At last we entered a small valley where the wind whistled and roared with a thousand voices. It had grown dark. The Mongol wandered around searching for the trail, and finally came back to us, flourishing his arms and saying, "'We have lost the road. We must spend the night here. It is very bad, because we shall have no wood for our stove, and the cold will grow worse.' With great difficulties and with frozen hands we managed to set up our tent in the wind, placing in it the now useless stove. We covered the tent with snow, dug deep, long ditches in the drifts, and forced our camels to lie down in them by shouting the Tsuk Tsuk command to kneel. Then we brought our packs into the tent. My companion rebelled against the thought of spending a cold night with a stove hard by. "'I'm going out to look for firewood,' said he very decisively, and at that took up the axe and started. He returned after an hour with a big section of a telegraph pole. "'You, Genghis Khan's,' said he, rubbing his frozen hands, "'take your axes and go up there to the left on the mountain, and you will find the telegraph poles that have been cut down. I made acquaintance with the old Jagastai, and he showed me the poles.' Just a little way from us the line of the Russian telegraphs passed, that which had connected Irkutsk with Uliasatai before the days of the Bolsheviki, and which the Chinese had commanded the Mongols to cut down and take the wire. These poles are now the salvation of travellers crossing the pass. Thus we spent the night in a warm tent, supped well from hot meat soup with vermicelli, all in the very centre of the dominion of the angered Jagastai. Early the next morning we found the road not more than two or three hundred paces from our tent, and continued our hard trip over the ridge of Tarbagatai. At the head of the Adair River Valley we noticed a flock of the Mongolian crows with carmine beaks circling among the rocks. We approached the place and discovered the recently fallen bodies of a horse and rider. What had happened to them was difficult to guess. They lay close together. The bridle was wound around the right wrist of the man. No trace of knife or bullet was found. It was impossible to make out the features of the man. His overcoat was Mongolian, but his trousers and underjacket were not of the Mongolian pattern. We asked ourselves what had happened to him. Our Mongol bowed his head in anxiety, and said in hushed but assured tones, "'It is the vengeance of Jagastai. The rider did not make sacrifice at the southern oboe, and the demon has strangled him and his horse.' At last Tarbagatai was behind us. Before us lay the valley of the Adair. It was a narrow zigzagging plain following along the river-bed between close mountain ranges, and covered with a rich grass. It was cut into two parts by the road along which the prostrate telegraph-poles now lay, as the stumps of varying heights and long stretches of wire completed the debris. This destruction of the telegraph line between Irkutsk and Uliasatai was necessary and incident to the aggressive Chinese policy in Mongolia. Soon we began to meet large herds of sheep, which were digging through the snow to the dry but very nutritious grass. 
In some places, yaks and oxen were seen on the high slopes of the mountains. Only once, however, did we see a shepherd, for all of them, spying us first, had made off to the mountains or hidden in the ravines. We did not even discover any yurtas along the way. The Mongols had also concealed all their movable homes in the folds of the mountains out of sight and away from the reach of the strong winds. Nomads are very skilful in choosing the places for their winter dwellings. I had often in winter visited the Mongolian yurtas set in such sheltered places that, as I came off the windy plains, I felt as though I were in a conservatory. Once we came up to a big herd of sheep, but as we approached most of the herd gradually withdrew, leaving one part that remained unmoved as the other worked off across the plains. From this section soon about thirty of forty had emerged, and went scrambling and leaping right up the mountainside. I took up my glasses and began to observe them. The part of the herd that remained behind were common sheep. The large section that had drawn off over the plain were Mongolian antelopes, Gazella guterosa, while the few that had taken to the mountain were the big horned sheep, Ovis argali. All this company had been grazing together with the domestic sheep on the plains of the Adair, which attracted them with its good grass and clear water. In many places the river was not frozen, and in some places I saw great clouds of steam over the surface of the open water. In the meantime some of the antelopes and the mountain sheep began looking at us. "'Now they will soon begin to cross our trail,' laughed the Mongol. "'Very funny beasts. Sometimes the antelopes course for miles in their endeavour to outrun and cross in front of our horses.' and then, when they have done so, go loping quietly off. I had already seen this strategy of the antelopes, and I decided to make use of it for the purpose of the hunt. We organized our chase in the following manner. We let one Mongol with the pack-camel proceed as we had been travelling, and the other three of us spread out like a fan headed toward the herd on the right of our true course. The herd stopped and looked about, puzzled, for their etiquette required that they should cross the path of all four of these riders at once. Confusion began. They counted about three thousand heads. All this army began to run from one side to another, but without forming any distinct groups. Whole squadrons of them ran before us, and then, noticing another rider, came coursing back and made anew the same manoeuvre. One group of about fifty head rushed in two rows toward my point. When they were about a hundred and fifty paces away, I shouted and fired. They stopped at once and began to whirl round in one spot, running into one another and even jumping over one another. Their panic cost them dear, for I had time to shoot four times to bring down two beautiful heads. My friend was even more fortunate than I, for he shot only once into the herd as it rushed past him in parallel lines and dropped two with the same bullet. Meanwhile, the Argali had gone farther up the mountainside, and taken stand there in a row like so many soldiers, turning to gaze at us. Even at this distance I could clearly distinguish their muscular bodies with their majestic heads and stalwart horns. Picking up our prey, we overtook the Mongol who had gone on ahead, and continued our way. In many places we came across the carcasses of sheep with necks torn and the flesh of the sides eaten off. "'It is the work of wolves,' said the Mongol. "'They are always hereabout in large numbers.' We came across several more herds of antelope, 
which ran along quietly enough until they had made a comfortable distance ahead of us, and then with tremendous leaps and bounds crossed our bows like the proverbial chicken on the road. Then, after a couple of hundred paces at this speed, they stopped and began to graze quite calmly. Once I turned my camel back, and the whole herd immediately took up the challenge again, coursed along parallel with me until they had made sufficient distance for their ideas of safety, and then once more rushed across the road ahead of me, as though it were paved with red-hot stones, only to assume their previous calmness and graze back on the same side of the trail from which our column had first started them. On another occasion I did this three times with a particular herd, and laughed long and heartily at their stupid customs. We passed a very unpleasant night in this valley. We stopped on the shore of the frozen stream in a spot where we found shelter from the wind under the lee of a high shore. In our stove we did have a fire, and in our kettle, boiling water. Also our tent was warm and cosy. We were quietly resting with pleasant thoughts of supper to soothe us, when suddenly a howling and laughter as though from some inferno burst upon us from just outside the tent, while from the other side of the valley came the long and doleful howls in answer. "'Wolves!' calmly explained the Mongol, who took my revolver and went out of the tent. He did not return for some time, but at last we heard a shot, and shortly after he entered. "'I scared them a little,' said he. They had congregated on the shore of the Adair around the body of a camel. "'And they have not touched our camels?' we asked. "'We shall make a bonfire behind our tent. Then they will not bother us.' After our supper we turned in, but I lay awake for a long time, listening to the crackle of the wood in the fire, the deep sighing breaths of the camels, and the distant howling of the packs of wolves, but finally, even with all these noises, fell asleep. How long I had been asleep I did not know, when suddenly I was awakened by a strong blow in the side. I was lying at the very edge of the tent, and someone from outside had, without the least ceremony, pushed strongly against me. I thought it was one of the camels chewing the felt of the tent. I took my mauser and struck the wall. A sharp scream was followed by the sound of quick running over the pebbles. In the morning we discovered the tracks of wolves approaching our tent from the side opposite to the fire, and followed them to where they had begun to dig under the tent wall, but evidently one of the would-be robbers was forced to retreat with a bruise on his head from the handle of the mauser. Wolves and eagles are the servants of Jagastai, the Mongol very seriously instructed us. However, this does not prevent the Mongols from hunting them. Once in the camp of Prince Baisai, I witnessed such a hunt. The Mongol horseman on the best of his steeds overtook the wolves on the open plain and killed them with heavy bamboo sticks or tashur. A Russian veterinary surgeon taught the Mongols to poison wolves with strychnine, but the Mongols soon abandoned this method because of its danger to the dogs, the faithful friends and allies of the nomad. They do not, however, touch the eagles and hawks, but even feed them. When the Mongols are slaughtering animals, they often cast bits of meat up into the air for the hawks and eagles to catch in flight, just as we throw a bit of meat to a dog. Eagles and hawks fight and drive away the magpies and crows, which are very dangerous for cattle and horses, because they scratch and peck at the smallest wound or abrasion on the backs of the animals 
until they make them into uncurable areas which they continue to harass. End of chapter.